Well, if you are newer to us, I want to let you know that for these sermon times, we mostly, we tend to go through books of the Bible. Start at the beginning of a book and we go passage by passage, by passage through the end of the book. That's usually how we do things. Part of that's because as pastors, we're just not very clever. Like, like <clears throat> those mini-series, the topical mini-series we do, those take a lot of work. And we don't have a lot to offer. And so we take the Bible and we go, oh, God wrote this. Hey, how about we preach through that? Right? We're just not that clever. The other thing that it does for us, though, as a congregation, is it forces us to deal with hard passages. Because when you only do topical, you can skip those. Right? And now when you go through books of the Bible, you've got to face some of those. So that's one of the things it does for us. Now, what we've been doing is back in December, we wrapped up First Thessalonians, and then we took a little break, right? We had a baptism Sunday that was awesome, loved all those stories. And then we took four weeks, and we did that series called Healthy Idolatry. And after that, just last weekend, we had a bonus Sunday where we got to hear a redemption story. We got into Psalm 10. It was awesome. And now, today, we start Second. Thessalonians. We're jumping right into that. So here are the very first two verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever we start a book of the Bible or one of these letters written in the New Testament, it's usually my habit to spend the, the first sermon kind of doing an intro. But in this case, I'm going to give a very abbreviated introduction to the book, and that is because if you really want more, you can go to our very first sermon in 1 Thessalonians. It wasn't that long ago. It's on our website and get a little bit more of the data. So I'm going to gloss it for now, but at least this, you'll notice it's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is the Roman form of Silas. Maybe you're more used to that name. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were this missionary team that traveled throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches along the way. Paul actually did three journeys, and on his second missionary journey, he's being joined by these guys. Uh, he feels called to go over to Macedonia. We would call that today Greece. So they get over there, and he enters a town called Thessalonica. There he plants a church, but it's not too long after that that he gets chased out of town by persecution. And so he goes with his companions down to Athens. Now when they get to Athens, Paul loves this church he planted in Thessalonica. He's concerned for these spiritual children of his. And so he sends Timothy back. Timothy wasn't as noticeable or visible as Paul, so Timothy goes back up to just see how they're doing. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas go down to Corinth. Timothy, after getting a picture of that, comes down, joins them at Corinth, and kind of gives his report. Here's how they're doing up there in Thessalonica. As a result of that, Paul then writes a letter back to the church. That is 1 Thessalonians. That's what we've already studied. But he doesn't drop it in the mail because there was no mail. Right? So he has to grab a messenger and say, hey, take this up there. And so the messenger then takes 1 Thessalonians up, drops it off. While he is there, presumably a he, is dropping that letter off, he kind of interacts with the church, gets a feel for how it's going. Then he returns, gives Paul another report, just like Timothy did, gives Paul another report, prompts Paul to write a second letter, 2 Thessalonians. 
And that's what we'll be studying right now. Notice this, though. All that took place within a year. So this is a short period of time from when Paul entered Thessalonica till the writing of 2 Thessalonians. And as we've been going through first and now second, we are calling this Letters from Your Dad. Part of that is because uh, Paul is like a dad to the Thessalonians. Remember, these, this is a church full of very new believers. They're all young, less than a year old in the Lord. And Paul views them very much like children. He loves them. He gave birth to this church. Those are his spiritual kids. He loves them. And throughout the letters, a lot of it reads like a dad writing a letter to his kids. But the other reason we call it letters from your dad is because it's not just a letter from Paul to these Christians 2,000 years ago, but we believe it is the inspired, inerrant word of God, which means it is they are letters from our Heavenly Father to us. These are letters from our dad to us. There is a parental tone, though, and you'll see that right away. So Paul gets busy. Here we are in verse 3. Let's look at this together. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Do do you hear a proud dad in that? I mean, totally. Like, he's like, he sees that they're growing so much in their faith. Listen, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. And Paul's seeing that in them, and so he's celebrating it. And then another thing, he sees that they're loving each other. The thing we want as parents, we want our kids to get along, right? And and Paul sees within that church, his kids are getting along, and he, he loves that. And so what he starts to do is he's boasting about them. That's a parent move, right? Boasting about your kids, that's what we do. So Paul boasts about them to the other churches. So that kind of sounds like, why aren't you more like your brother up in Thessalonica? (laughs) It's not always good, but but that's what he's doing. He's boasting about them. And one of the things he's particularly boasting about, you see towards the end there, is that they're holding firm despite persecution and suffering. And isn't that what we want for our kids? We know life's going to throw hard stuff at them. And we're just saying, man, don't fold. Keep going. Keep growing. And Paul's seeing them do that, so he's thrilled. In fact, that theme of persecution uh, is really throughout both letters. But Paul's going to start there and continue there in our letter today. And some of that might be because as that messenger went up and dropped off 1 Thessalonians, probably saw, hey, wow, this persecution's really still going on. In fact, it's getting harder. So as he came back and gave Paul his report, Paul's concerned about that. He's glad they're hanging in there, though. So he starts there, and that's where we continue. Now we're on verse 5. He says, this is evidence that this, the persecution that you're experiencing, right? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire. All right, Paul said a lot there. 
part of that is encouragement to these young Christians during a time of suffering. You've heard it said that a parent is only as happy as his or her least happy child, right? And so here Paul is, he's like, you're messing with my babies. Those are my kids, and they're hurting. And so Paul's hurting for them, and he has some things to say about their suffering. First, he says, suffer for something worthy. Suffer, you see it in there, suffer for something worthy. So what you see is the Thessalonian Christians are suffering for the kingdom of God. I'm going to be honest with you. Some of you are suffering, and it's not for the kingdom of God. It's because you make dumb choices. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. So some of our suffering is dumb choices. Sometimes what it is, is we're trying to get the world's goods just like our non-Christian neighbors, and that's suffering. That's not what Paul's talking about. They are living for Christ, and they're getting heat because of it. They're living for the kingdom. So he's saying, suffer for something worthy. But then Paul says, suffering is something worthy. Not only do you suffer for something worthy, yes, for the kingdom, but suffering is something worthy. And you see that in the prayers. You see, in these two letters, there are a lot of prayers written out that Paul is praying for the Thessalonian Christians. Parents, let me ask you, if your kids were experiencing persecution and suffering, what would you pray? For it to stop, right? Okay, look what Pastor Stephen Cole says about this passage says, it is significant that in writing to new believers who are going through persecution, Paul never writes, I pray that your persecution will end soon. Huh. Rather, his prayers are focused on their growth in godliness and on the furtherance of God's kingdom and glory through their perseverance in persecution. See, suffering is something worthy. And it does worthy stuff in us. Let me quickly list three things. Number one, it forges our character because God's a great blacksmith. And as a blacksmith, sometimes you need to apply heat to heat up the metal so it's soft so you can forge it into something worthy. Suffering forges our character. Secondly, suffering breaks our love affair with this world. We're having an affair. We have a, we have a mistress, okay? God is our Lover, we're in covenant relationship with him, but we're kind of having an affair with this world, and suffering comes along and makes us go, maybe this isn't so good. Like, maybe this world isn't so great after all, and it, it breaks our love affair with the world, this fallen world. And then thirdly, what suffering does for us is it causes us to look to Christ. Like independence, because it's so hard. So independence, we look to Jesus now, but also we're looking forward to Jesus coming back. We're looking toward his second coming. And Paul has a lot to say that, about that. In both letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul talks about Jesus coming back a lot. After all, Paul's watching his kids go through some really hard stuff. Parents, have you ever, have you ever watched your kids go through hard stuff? Your heart's just breaking for them. So here's Papa Paul saying, hey, hang in. Relief is coming. Justice is coming. But remember, this, this is also a letter from our heavenly dad to us who is saying to us, hang in. Relief is coming. Justice is coming. Dad's coming back for you. I'm coming to get you. And so there's great encouragement that Jesus will return. Now, that will bring, as it says, relief to us. But what we're going to see pretty quickly 
is that thou will not be happy for everyone. And I'll be honest with you, this is where today's message takes a very serious turn and a little bit more somber. Let's continue. I'm going to repeat verse 7. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Well, okay then. This sounds like a happy sermon, doesn't it? This is going to be great. See, I told you, when we go through books, we don't get to avoid the hard passages. And here we are. And so, yay, today I get to preach on hell, and some of you just won't like this sermon. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about that. But what we're going to do is look at what he says here. So if you look at verse 9, that's where it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Now that can be a little bit of a head-scratcher, because one of the things we know about God is that he is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present. There's nowhere you can go from the presence of the Lord. He's everywhere, right? But then this says that they're away from the presence. How's that work? And what's going on there is they are away from the manifest presence of God for good, but they are in the manifest presence of God, and his manifest presence in hell is one of vengeance. That's the word used there. That's not our vengeance, that's petty vindictiveness, but in this case, it is just retribution. John chapter 3 says that there the wrath of God abides on them. That doesn't sound so good. So, so what is then, what does it mean to be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might? <clears throat> well, it, you're away from everything good and beautiful and awesome about God. You know, in this world, it's like a mixture of like, it's beautiful and horrific, right? This world is a mix. Like, think about this world, but take out everything good. Everything. Everything that is pure and holy and beautiful and lovely and glorious so they're away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. What that means is in their rebellion, they've rejected God, and God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And he leaves them. And it's a horrific thing. In fact, Matthew chapter 13, verse 42 says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I told you this will be heavy, so, so what I'm going to do is take a moment and address annihilationism, because sometimes that comes up in uh, looking at verses like these. Annihilationism is the idea, it kind of comes out of, if you look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it uses the word eternal destruction, two words really, eternal destruction. And what some want to do with that is say, well, what that means is they are destroyed. So they just, poof, they cease to exist. They're annihilated. They are no more. So there's not like ongoing suffering and torment in hell. They're annihilated. And it is an increasing teaching among many Christians and uh, sadly from some pastors. A part of us likes the idea. That sounds good to our ears. We don't like the idea of eternal punishment in hell. 
So maybe they're just destroyed. Maybe they just poof, cease to exist. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. So I'll show you a quote from a guy named Fritz Reinecker. And you know he's smart because his name is Fritz Reinecker. <laughs> you get that name, you're going to grow up smart, right? And he wrote a, uh, a linguistic key to the New Testament, meaning he's looking at these words and saying, here's what they mean. In the word in Greek for destruction, eternal destruction, that's what he's writing about here, and here's what he says. The word does not mean annihilation, but implies the loss of all things that give worth to existence. You see, they're away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Even though that's what it really means, nonetheless, some are still pushing this teaching and believing annihilationism. So what I'm going to do today is systematic theology. That's a fancy way of saying I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. Some of you are like, crap, it's church. What do you expect? Get over it, right? So I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. And the first one is this, Mark chapter 9. Verses 47 to 49, this is Jesus speaking, and Jesus said this. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That means the flames of hell are eternal. Now, some annihilationists will say, well, maybe the flames are eternal, but the destruction is immediate. So when you get thrown into the eternal flames, poof, you're done, annihilation. And that is doing origami with the text of scriptures, where we try to make them say what we want them to say. It also makes God an incredibly inefficient engineer who had to design an eternal place for a split second in time. That just doesn't make sense. And as well, as you look at this passage, ask yourself this. Why on earth would I care how many eyes I have if I'm thrown into hell and immediately I cease to exist? How does that matter at all? And why in the world would I be willing to pluck one out during this life on earth in order to avoid that? That's silliness. That's just silliness. But if you remember from our main passage today in 2 Thessalonians, it is all about things like the righteous judgment of God. And he says, since indeed God considers it just. This is about justice. And he says just to repay with affliction. Affliction is not annihilation. Those are two different things. This is about justice. The reality is annihilation is not justice. Think about it this way. So some dude decides to live any way he wants. I know what you say, God, I don't care. I'm going to live any way I want and I'm going to keep both my eyes. Thank you very much. And, and then I'm, he's going to reject God. Give God the finger. I don't care about God. I'm done with you. And he's going to do whatever he wants, hurting people. So this person will oppress, abuse, kill, steal, rape, molest. I don't care. And then at the end of his life of wanton hedonism, he simply closes his eyes, both eyes, and takes a peaceful dirt nap. Ceases to exist. Does that sound like justice to you? I don't think it is. And instead, what Jesus does is he makes something really clear. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. He says, and these will go away into eternal 
punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And what he says in that verse, Jesus gave us the most passages about hell, and he speaks about it as eternal, just like heaven is eternal. And so you see there that the punishment is eternal in the same way that our life in paradise with Christ will be eternal. And he also speaks of it as punishment. So if I just, poof, cease to exist, annihilationism, then in what way is that punishment? Well, the annihilationists will respond and say, uh, here's how, you just don't get the bonus gift of eternal life. That's the punishment, to which I say, so? Like, so what? I had an awesome hedonistic ride. It was like a lifelong drunken orgy. It was wild. And, and I don't love God. I don't care about God. I don't want to be in heaven with God, so I don't get to go to heaven. What do I care? And so Jesus will just be returning me to a state of non-existence. Remember, before I was created, I didn't exist. So Jesus will just return me to my state of non-existence. Where's the punishment in that? Where's the justice in that? tell you this there's also no salvation in that there's no salvation Jesus is not saving me from anything horrible if annihilationism is true he's not saving me from anything horrible what Jesus is and instead of the Savior Jesus we should now call him bonus giver but the scriptures refer to him as a Savior because he's saving us from something horrible remember Christ said of Judas the one who betrayed him, he said that it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. That means in his state of non-existence that there's something in Judas's future that is worse than non-existence. And just to make the case a little bit tighter, I'll give you Revelation 20. In Revelation 20 verse 10 is very clear. It says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, that's, that's really clear. Like clearly the lake of fire does not annihilate and lead to a cessation of existence. Instead it's tormenting day and night forever and ever. We go, well, uh, well who cares, right? Because that's just Satan. At least no humans go there. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so then I'm like, okay, I've got to know what that book of life is. <laughs> that sounds important to me. Uh, and that is, so, so if you're one who has placed, not just Christian religion, but placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he belongs to you, you belong to him, you're his child, like you're walking with him, then, then your name goes in the book of life. And we avoid that fate which is justly ours. Now let me be very clear about something. I don't like this. <laughs> I, if you love the doctrine of hell, there is something wrong with your character. There's a flaw in there. I do not like this. But I must teach the scriptures and let them correct us as opposed to teaching what I want and correcting the scriptures. We've got to do that. Now, there are some common responses to this teaching. Uh, one of them is to say, well, God is love. I didn't say in the scripture, God is love. And a loving God would never send someone to hell. Okay. Let me, let me acknowledge, yes, the scriptures do say God is love. But let me rephrase what I just said. 
God is love, and I have determined, I have decided that a loving God would never punish someone for eternity. Therefore, there is no eternal punishment in hell. But you caught the operative part, right? I have decided. So, so I have decided what love means. I have decided what justice means. I have decided what God can do. I have decided what God can't do. I have decided what eternity is like. But the issue isn't what I've decided or what you've decided. The issue is what God has revealed. And that's what we got to be after. Now, in his word, he reveals, yes, God is love. But listen closely. God is love. Love is not God. Okay? God is love. But God is not only love, therefore love is not God. God is also justice. God is also, he has wrath and he has vengeance and he has righteousness. Righteousness and evil are issues in play here. All right, well, let me give you another common objection. Some will say, well, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. A God like what? Perfectly holy? Perfectly righteous? Perfectly just? See, we have such a weak view of God's wrath and justice because we have such a weak view of his holiness. I want to make sure you caught that. Let me say it again. We have such a weak view of God's wrath and justice because we have such a weak view of his holiness. To try to tease that out a little bit, I want you to fix in your mind what you would think is like a prototypical, the worst, most horrific sinner ever. Is it a serial pedophile rapist? Ooh. Is it Hitler? Is it um, KKK and skinheads and racists? Is it genocide? Wiping out the weak, the infirm, getting rid of the uh, mentally challenged? Is it a doctor that kills babies after they're born alive? I want you to get that that prototypical sinner in your head. And what I want you to do next is I want, to dr- I want you to draw in your mind a spectrum of holiness. Of course, that worst person's going to be way down at that end. Sorry, you guys are on the bad side, right? <laughs> going to be way down at that end, okay? Now put God on the scale. Of course, way, like inf- there's infinity, infinity in between, right? There's an infinite distance between these two poles. Now here's the problem. Put yourself on the scale. If that horrible person's here, I'm like right here. In fact, if I take two steps back, I can't even tell the difference. And the reason why is because God's infinitely down that way. Like, we got to realize, you are infinitely closer to that person than you are to God. We have such a weak view of his holiness. Such a weak view. And my point is this, that based on our puny understanding of holiness, maybe eternal punishment in hell seems a little bit too much. But our puny holiness is not the standard. God's holiness is. You see that? We have little concept of the magnitude of God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice, and therefore we have very little understanding of the magnitude of our offense and what is a just punishment for it. Holiness demands justice. God cannot be a judge who winks at sin and sweeps it under the rug. If so, he is not righteous, he is not holy, he is not God. He just can't do that. Still, 
Still though, it does say God is love. God is merciful. God is gracious. So in the midst of that problem, what he does is he steps into time and space as the person of Jesus Christ. He comes himself, satisfies his holiness, satisfies his justice, satisfies his wrath on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it's at the cross of Christ that there is this majestic and mysterious intersection of both justice and love. They meet at the cross. And both are perfectly maintained. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's our God. But note this. If somebody rejects Jesus, says, well, thank you very much, but no. Okay, if you look in our passage, it said that. On those who do not, who gets the punishment? It's on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice it didn't say bad people or good people. That's not the issue in the text. And so if they reject Jesus, then the wrath of God abides on them. And when you enter eternity in, the, in that state, that ain't so good. And they get their just punishment. But if that happens, then we cannot point to God and accuse him of being unloving. Not the God who came and took the cross upon himself. That's a very loving God. That love was just rejected. Now, maybe... As I've addressed annihilationism for a second and talked about the reality of hell, maybe you're still not convinced. And I want you to know that's okay. But I'm going to be very firm with you for a second. God considers it just. Your opinion doesn't matter. God is the standard of justice. He judges us. We don't stand in judgment of God. Do you get the pride in that? He judges us. It reminds me of this quote from J. Vernon McGee who said this is God's universe and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. It's <laughs> a great quote. I wish I were that smart. I am basically channeling my inner Baptist preacher today. <laughs> this, is, this is heavy stuff. This is hard stuff. As I was looking down the road a couple weeks ago, knowing this passage was coming and studying for it, I'm like, oh, man. Like, nobody's going to walk out of this sermon going, that was my favorite sermon ever. <laughs> it's just not going to happen, right? Uh, but fortunately, we have a few verses left that we get to end on a little bit different note. Two verses are left to us. We'll start in verse 11. Paul, having laid out all that that we just covered, here's, here's what he says. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do with the next few moments as we wrap this up is just do a little bit of application. I want to ask the question, so what? In light of what we've covered, so what? And there's a lot of so what in that passage right there. He talks about living worthy. So the first so what is this, live worthy. Now, to live worthy doesn't mean, man, you better live worthy or else you're going to hell. No, that's not it. We get out of hell by placing our faith in Christ. Now that your faith is in Christ and you're adopted as a child, live worthy of that. John Piper has a great way of teasing it out. As he was writing on this passage, here's what he said. He said, being made worthy doesn't mean being made deserving. It means being made suitable or fitting or appropriate because of the worth of another. 
So we would say, I need to fix up this room because the Queen of England is going to stay with us and the room needs to be worthy of her dignity. Okay, it's pretty clever. Check this out. She didn't decide to come because the room is beautiful. The room should be made beautiful because she is coming. So we are being made suitable for our calling into God's kingdom and glory. See that difference? Okay, the queen ain't coming. The king is. King Jesus is coming. And so we who belong to him want to live worthy and we want to get it ready for him. Live worthy. Now the second so what flows off that. It's to trust vengeance for, to God. Like this is part of living worthy. We got to trust vengeance to God because some of you have been waiting for justice for a really, really, really long time. It will come. It will be done. We can leave that to the hand of God. He has not relinquished his throne. Justice will be done. And by faith, I can say, God, that's your business, not mine. And we can just leave vengeance to God. We don't have to live bitter. Now, a third part of the so what is this. Long for the return of our king. There's a lot about that in these passages, right? Long for the return of her king. But I want you to know, Jesus' second coming will be very different from his first coming. In fact, let me show you a list of some differences. First, he came as a lamb. When he comes back, the next time he's coming as a lion. The first coming, he was unnoticed. In his second coming, it will be unmistakable. The first coming, born in a manger, he was born feeble. When he comes back next time, there's going to be fire. When he came the first time, he was vulnerable. Now he's coming back in victory. We long for, we look forward to the return of our king. And at that moment, it will usher us into eternity. Now, now that's the next so what. I want you to look forward to eternity. Look forward to eternity. Listen, it's worth it. I know this life in this hard, broken, fallen world is tough. But it is worth it. It might not always feel like it, but it is. You have to know the very first split second that we stand in the presence of God in eternity, when all sad things become untrue, every last one of us who is a disciple of Jesus will in that moment harmonize together and say, it was worth it. It's worth it. So we long for and we look forward to eternity. Hang in there. This is just temporary. Dad's coming back for us. He's coming for us. Now, until we go home to eternity, there is a task left to us. And so the next so what is this. Go tell people the gospel. Go tell as many people as you can the good news about Jesus. Dr. John Wolver, he was a seminary professor. He wrote a, a book explaining the book of Revelation called A Commentary. And as he wrote on Revelation 20, which I've already quoted this morning, when he wrote on that, here's what he said. He said, Though many have attempted to find some scriptural way to avoid the doctrine of eternal punishment, as far as biblical revelation is concerned, there are only two destinies for human souls. One is to be with the Lord, and the other is to be forever separated from God in the lake of fire. This solemn fact is motivation for carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost. 
and doing everything possible to inform and challenge people to receive Christ before it is too late. Why do we piddle around with stupid stuff when that's at stake? And so some of you I know might be going, well, I don't know how to tell people about the message of Christ. We're putting it on the low shelf for you. I got a video online, thedoorvideo.com. You can get these cards out of the Welcome Center. Give them to somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm not great at communicating it, but, but this is the kind of message that really changed my life. It, on your own time in your own home, would you go online and just watch this 14-minute video? And I'd love for you to know this. Now, I know you might be going, that might be awkward. Okay, time out. Look back at the screen. Look at what Walvard said. Does your awkwardness matter? When, when their eternity is at stake, i got to get over myself and say, my awkwardness just doesn't matter by comparison. And we got to tell people about our Lord. In fact, to that end, I have one last so what? And it's this. Receive Christ. I realize some of you sitting in this room or maybe you're down the hall or online. Some of you have never crossed that threshold to make Jesus your Savior and Lord. You've been dabbling in Christian religion, but you've never said yes to Christ and let Him into your heart where He invades and He belongs to you, you belong to Him. You're going to walk with Him. You are His kid. And I wonder if you'd do that today. In fact, do me a favor. Bow your heads with me. Some of you might be considering making that choice right now. And though we've talked about hell today, I don't want you to just run from hell. But I want you to run into the arms of your Savior, the God of love and justice. You've got to realize, running to God and running from hell, they go together or not at all. I'm wondering if some of you would run into the arms of your Savior right now. In fact, if you want to take a step of faith... It, Go ahead and stand. Stand right where you are right now. Or raise your hand or do both. I don't care. Just do something to indicate, God, I, I need you. I want you. You can go ahead and sit down or do whatever you want. I, but Father, I, I want to come to your presence right now, and I want to admit before you and the, these people that of all people on the face of the planet, if anyone ever deserved hell, <laughs> it's me. It's me. We all deserve it. We've all rebelled against you. There's nothing we can do to overcome that. Except that Jesus did it for us. So thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love as your justice and love met at the cross. Father, thank you for Jesus. And I, I pray that we would be a people that would live worthy that we would leave vengeance to you, that we would long for the return of our King, that we would look forward to eternity, but then, Lord, would you use us right now, that we might trumpet far and wide, loud and proud, the message of our great Savior, so that many would hear before it's too late. Father, use us in that way, I pray, in Christ's name.